Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast, where for about 30 minutes, no more, because we want you to go outside and have some more fun than listening to us talk, we tell you all the interesting things going on in the sport, and particularly this time. And this time we're going to uh, much more detail in terms of how to do the big projects, what some tips you might want to do. Because we get so many people talking about it now. We get inquiries. Peter Backwin, uh, we often thought we could have a special sponsorship category called Peter Will Hold Your Hand. But we don't need to have that. All you need to do is listen to Jared here. And, of course, Jared, being the great athlete that he is, hates to have his bio read. But you've done a few things, and I think you've got a few tips for people in terms of not the little stuff. I shouldn't say little. Everything is important. Everything is worthwhile. But I should say things that go at least overnight. You had some tips for how to make those work. What we wanted to dive into here was some more of the more of the details and the minutia behind a successful project. You know, big project, day plus kind of project. Right. So, do you have how many tips do you have here? Well, we watered it down to four. Four. Um, yep. So we're going to talk about planning. We're going to talk about gear, food and then strategy. Strategy, my favorite, but let's start with planning. Yeah, so planning, there's a lot that can go into that. It's very helpful as somebody, it takes a rather analytical approach to it, right? So you're saying, we, you gotta plan. You gotta plan. I think if, <laughs> if, if, uh, it's, if, if the group project doesn't have anybody who knows how to plan or read a map, I think uh, there's gonna be some good stories. <laughs> Okay, well, that's a good place to start. I, 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 we, we both assume this, but maybe other people are not. Maybe other people are thinking you just fire off there, and by breathing a lot and running a lot, you can get to the <laughs> other end. Well, thankfully, you know, the Fastest Stone Time website has a lot of great information, maps and, and details and whatnot. But um, for me over the years, you know, I really get drawn to some objective. Maybe it's a place or a peak or a number of peaks or a park. Um, so most things start with a map for me. Ah, so you're, you're the mapper. I'm a mapper. Okay. I roll a map out on the table and start planning. And, you know, that's used, something you used to do on paper. Now you do most of that digitally now. So, you, 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 so that was a figure of speech, rolling it out on a table. What you really meant is looking at it on your external monitor. Yes, but I am old enough to have used to use paper maps. <laughs> in fact, my dad was a cartographer. Back really? in the day, back when you did oh, so a bunch this of runs in the, I never knew this. This runs in the genes. It does, yes. Oh, okay. So you're going to plan the route out in advance. Well, or maybe you are. This is interesting. This is interesting. Because many of the things we've done, I should note, are not existing routes. So the planning part becomes massive. It's not that you're planning the navigational aspects, but you're just figuring out what the route should be at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, for me, I, I start... Again, there's something that's drawn my attention to a particular area. Maybe somebody's told me about a place or I've seen something in a photo or whatnot. But I, the minute I see that, the minute my attention's drawn in, I'm in Caltopo or I'm in Google Earth. <laughs> and that's where I start planning things out. And these are free. They're free. Caltopo's uh, pretty amazing. That's really the starting point for me. If you pay for the pro account, I think it's like 30 bucks a year, um, and that's maybe something to consider too, because it, you can connect in a plugin into Google Earth. Actually, so as, uh, if you have two screens or a wide screen, open up Google or Caltopo on one side. As you're drawing the map, literally, it's doing a refresh every about 10 seconds, and you see it now in 3D in Google Earth. 
So wow. you kind of have the best of, you know, 2D top-down look on something like Caltopo and then visualizing that in 3D as well. well. Let's clarify for the folks that Google Earth enables you to sort of see the terrain. It highlights vegetation, topography, elevation, and so forth. And you can rotate it around so you can see how steep something is, see if you can make it up or down it or not. But Caltopo is how you draw the route. It, you can pull up the USGS topographic maps, other information, and then literally draw a line, a digital line, and annotate it with camps, water, and things of that nature. Yep. And it's all web-based, which is really cool. So oftentimes I find myself, I'll map something out, send a link over to a friend and say, hey, check this out. And if they're looking at their screen at the same time as me, they can see things real time. So I could drop a pin here and say, hey, here's a water source. They could see it pop up on their screen. To get even more interactive, you can share your screens through like Zoom, which is a tool I use. A neat way to share screens and whatnot. But, but yeah, it really just starts with a 2D map. And um, whether I'm loading in a GPS file that from a run I did or something that somebody sent me, it's a combination of both maybe trails that exist in the database already, things you've done yourself, or you're literally just clicking along a ridge or a river or whatever it is. Um, now, what if someone is following an existing route? So they're not, this, this is essential for creating your own, but what if someone is following an existing route? Is the first step to ask or find the GPX file? Yeah, so uh, Caltopo is really interesting. I think it tapped into what's called the OpenStreetMap database, which is kind of like crowdsourcing for trails. So if you actually right-click in Caltopo, it'll pop onto the screen things that are in that database. And there's a lot of information out there. So that's kind of where I go first, and you'll see, oh my gosh, there's a path. If you click on it, literally you'll, it'll follow that path that's been created by other people traveling it. That's kind of step one. Um, that sort of assumes that you're doing a route that's popular enough that it's in the database. <laughs> Quite often... Um, it's not. It's not. <laughs> At which point, yeah, you start, you know... The neat thing is you can flip between uh, USGS maps, you can flip to Google Terrain. Um, there's other databases that overlaying different map sets um, to look for different features, right? I'll use satellite imagery to actually look for if something's... Uh, you know, tree or if there's a river or whatever, you can you can you can tell a lot by looking at the same place in space uh, or on the ground, I should say, um, using different types of maps. So I'm I'm constantly flipping between them, looking for different details. Right, in terms of establishing a, a route that goes. Yep. But again, what if the route already is there and you want to repeat it? What because that's what most people are going to be doing. I mean, mm -hmm. some of us are going to be you know doing the OKTs, only known times. Hopefully, soon to become FKTs, but most people are going to be repeating something that's been done. Uh, how? What's the best way to prepare and plan the navigation for one of those? I mean, if it's if it's completely defined already, right? You've probably got the file, like a GPX file of it. At that point, you're really going to walk through the path. Let's say it's a you know 100 mile run somewhere. You're gonna. For me, my my approach would be to walk through it and pick out kind of low points and high points and note the mileage of them, you know? So here's my start, five miles in, I'm at the top of the peak, 10 miles in, I'm at the bottom where there's a water source. And I kind of build, I kind of walk through the course much like you would on your feet, but you're doing it, you know, on the computer. I walk through and I make kind of milestones, you know, what, what are the big things you're gonna hit along the way? And I'll note out the mileages for them. And uh, this is where it's helpful if you tend to gravitate towards spreadsheets. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, a spreadsheet's a great way to do it. I'm happy to, to share kind of some of the templates and things I've used in the past. You mean uh, if someone emailed you? 
We could even put it on your, your show notes if you'd ah. like, actually link to, oh, to one Oh, or you're going to put them on a website somewhere, yep. and we'll put them in the written show notes, and then people get the templates for some of your timetables. Yeah. Great. I mean, um, I, I mentioned uh, you know, spreadsheets. You can do it with an Excel or in today's Google world Docs. of free tools, you know, Google Spreadsheets. Yeah. It's kind of what I use for everything. The nice thing is we'll just put a link to that and just share, share a file online. But for me, I kind of... Step one, walk through all the milestones, right? The high points, low points, interesting things you're going to run into along the way. Water sources are really worth putting a mileage down for them. Um, I'll note the distance between those, right? So distance between them, distance along it. And once I've, that's kind of step one from start to finish of the project. And then after that, I then go back in and make an assessment like, for this section, what, what, what might my, my speed be? You know, if it's a very steep hill, I'm going to estimate you know, two and a half miles an hour marching up some ridge if I'm running down a buttery trail, if you happen to have something like that in your project, <laughs> you're going to go faster, obviously. So um, that's kind of my thing is once I've put in the distances, drop in speeds, and then plug in a time of day, and it kind of builds a little timetable for you, which is really useful. For me, I literally take it with me on paper to keep track of where I'm at. So this will be a Google Sheet link that you are providing. Thank you, Jared. That will be in the written show notes for this episode. Thanks. Yeah. And I should note that Andrew Skirka does the exact same thing. He's so into the same thing. These thru-hikers, you know, Skirka, as you know, did the Great Western Loop, which is 5,000 miles. In the Alaska Yukon Wilderness Expedition, he had the same thing for that, those entire trips, months-long trips, yeah. doing the, the same detail of spreadsheet. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you just, I don't even know how to operate without it, without <laughs> a spreadsheet at this point. But I think it's really important. Other pieces of, of information I'll put in there, I'll make a cell at the very top for the start time. That kind of drives the whole spreadsheet, meaning I can sit and play games on shifting when I start, right? Do I start at 6 a.m., do I start at midnight, noon, whatever? And if you've set up the spreadsheet right, you know, it kind of builds that out for you. You don't want to have to... You know, let the computer do what it's good at. People will see this. What else uh, in terms of the planning category? Beyond spreadsheets? Well, <laughs> oh, I know that. Is there anything else, Buzz? <laughs> well, we looked at the mapping, obviously, with Google Earth giving you that visual overview and CalTOPA how to draw the actual line. And then you walk through it. You create the timetable on the spreadsheet. Um, here's a good question, something I've always done. I'm really into weather. Hmm. And so I will look up the weather averages for that date. I look up the snowpack. Just sh saved in my bookmarks for, uh, folder is Snowtel. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know Snowtel. Yeah. It's the Western uh, uh, regional way of forecasting how much snowpack will be available for their spring runoff. And so they have snow depths at, I think, 500 stations. And I will literally watch snow depths starting in December or January for a summer project because... The Sierras, the Wind River Range, very snow condition dependent. So that's part of planning. Totally. Completely agree. Hmm. I think another thing uh, worth talking about, too, is uh, sunrise, sunset, full moon, new moon. You know, these are things I think a lot about, too, because, you know, if you did something on June 21st with a full moon, you know, that's... That's really that's helpful. A, that's a special trip right there. When we did Zion Man, which was the mostly off-trail traverse of Zion National Park, uh, including some sort of mountaineering, a lot of trekking, a lot of running, a lot of canyoneering, we went up South Guardian Angel without headlamps at night. Yeah, I mean, it's just so special, right? If you can plan things around a full moon, <laughs> it's, it's pretty awesome. 
Okay, so what's our second? Gear. Gear. Gear's our other major consideration for planning a big project. Yeah. Can I add one more thing on the yes. fire category? Sorry. though? There's two other things really fast. Once, I, once it's planned out and you've got your little table set up, uh, you want to take that map with you, right? A paper map's a good thing if you want to have that as a backup, but at the very least, you're pulling it on the phone with you. I use Gaia. Uh, GPS. There's other apps that work really well too, and you'll want to download offline maps so they're on your phone. Don't make that mistake of not doing that beforehand. <laughs> GAIA, another amazing free app. It's free. I just, it's, it's so powerful. It's just uncanny. I just can't figure it out. Yeah, I do think you have to pay for it, but it's not much. It's not, I don't even remember. So it's like 20 bucks or something, or maybe a bit more. Some, okay. And it's so good that. The United States Geological Service stopped printing topographic maps, I think, five years ago. Yeah. They, they're literally out of print. Right. Because why do it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We can navigate with Gaia. I'm going to make a comment here on uh, maybe transition from the navigation into the gear, which is, you mentioned the smartphone, and what the heck. Now, some, what some people are doing are occasionally talking about are bringing the photovoltaic devices which I'm just going to say I think it's just a terrible idea. Uh, and the, the irony here is that as it happens, both you and I have serious photovoltaic panels on our houses, and we really believe in it, very sustainable energy, low energy consumption people. But I think it's for transport, I think it's a bad idea because it weighs way more than a spare backup battery. You can bring a little backup battery that's five times as powerful as your little PV charger. Yeah. You know, I went. I did a little trade study on this recently. From a, <laughs> mm -hmm. I was wondering if there was some point where it did make sense to bring a little tiny panel, like a seven watt panel or something, to charge. And my conclusion that it was like if you were in the week long and above, you know, over over five, six, seven days, something beyond that, and you, you know, you were beyond that, but you didn't have support. That then it started to make sense to bring a small panel. Otherwise, I'm with you. A light, small lithium ion battery is kind of the way to go. Right, and they only cost like seventy dollars. Yeah, or less. I mean, yeah. Okay, Good anything else on the planning? Planning, um, I guess the one final thing that I wanted to say there was, um, in addition to mapping the, the nominal route, the, the route you intend to uh -huh. do, noting places to bail should you have to is very, very important. And I've had to do that on a number of times. I've had wind rivers I've pulled the plug, Uintas I've pulled the plug, and it's, thankfully I had already pre-mapped, like if I bail here, like, you know, that's the way to go out. And if you didn't map that... You know, you're wandering. You're wandering, yeah. So I think that's super important. Plan where you need to go, but also plan where you hope to not have to go. And, the, and that's a very good point, Jared. And the other aspect of that, of course, is the Aaron Ralston effect, which means tell people where you're going. Absolutely. So not just you and your partner, but someone back home needs to have the entire route, and you need to give them the time and day that you expect to be out. And I always write this down. I don't just do it verbally. Yep. And then I give myself, you know, 20%, 10% if it's technical, and say, this is when you call 911. And I give them the number to call. Yeah. In fact, in the thing, in the spreadsheet that we'll put a link to, I've started to embed that type of information at the top of it, like the header oh. of the Excel file. So it gets filled in almost automatically. Yes, and when I send a link out to this, people can both see the timetable, but above that, they have a link to a tracker. They have a link to my map. They know 
you know, some of that data right there. So it's because I used to do emails like you to a group of people who might want to follow along. Now it's like, here's the one link. Go to this one place. It's like the source of information, you know. That's excellent. So that's a really helpful thing, you know, linking out to, say, your in-reach uh, tracker uh, file if you have that, link to your map, et cetera. Some of that stuff. Put it all in one file. Okay. That's part of the planning process. Yep. Okay. How about gear? So gear, um, you know, I think in today's world, uh, having an in-reach unit, uh, you know, I used to be a spot tracker kind of guy in the early days. I did product testing for them. Amazing device. But InReach just changed that with two-way comms. And I, I know there's other devices coming online now, but um, the InReach unit's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you're referring to the Garmin InReach Mini. Um, e either one. Ah. Sure. If you're willing, if you're strong enough to carry three and a half extra ounces, you could even have the old one. But the Mini is pretty amazing, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Mini is, I think, smaller than the Spot. Yeah. And the Spot is. was one, just to clarify, these are all PLBs, personal locator beacons. Yep. And they're originally designed just to send out a help, and it went up to a, a satellite orbiting, so you did not need cell phone coverage at all. It went to a satellite, and the satellite relayed it to a central HQ, who then called the appropriate agency to alert them of your problem and your GPS coordinates, which is the key thing. But with the uh, inReach, now you can link it to your phone, tied mm -hmm. in with your phone, so instead of pressing microscopic little buttons with your little finger, you can use your phone to actually send text. So it's a two-way messaging device. Yep. That's super powerful. I mean, and it's nice, yeah, to be able to link to the phone is great. You can use the keyboard uh, functionality of a phone, obviously. I still have the old one, actually. I have two of the old ones. Hmm. And the reason is um, they're a little bit more, well, one, the battery life is quite a bit longer on the, on the older one. Um, the mini is incredible, but I, I forget the battery life, but it's significantly less. It's still going to do, I, I think I used it in, in uh, the Uintas actually this year for 23 hours or something. At the, very, at the end, it was totally drained, but I had it in track mode, so every 10 minutes it was sending out a location. Um, but uh, either one's an amazing device. The older one, because it's bigger, happens to be a bit better if you had to pluck away a message on it as opposed to the... The mini, boy, the mini. that's... Uh, you'd have to have mini fingers to pluck away a message Yeah, in, in fact, you're better off pre-programming the messages on that and then sending it out by literally just selecting that message and saying, you know, right. send. Right, that's a good call. So another clarification, it used to be called the DeLorme inReach, but then Garmin bought DeLorme, so now it's the Garmin inReach. Yeah. You know, and they're not... I mean, I own two personally just because I do enough things that it makes sense to have to have them. Um, for others, maybe communities of runners consider banding together and get, getting one or two. I think two is really useful because um, I started off with one. I'm up there, you know, trucking around to the mountains and unable to communicate to my crew. The minute the crew should have one too, right? That's interesting because the crew is usually not hanging out watching TV. They usually yeah. don't have cell phone coverage. Yeah, and if you have two... You know, you're, you're bouncing through a satellite. It's pretty amazing the path that that little message takes to get from device to device, but it works. And essentially, you're using, like, you know, two-way walkie-talkies that go anywhere in the world. Wow. You know? That's a good way so to put it. It's an amazing little uh, device there, for sure. Other gear? Um, so since you're doing something that depends on a phone, having a, having a phone with you and the batteries for them <laughs> is obviously... Fairly critical. Um, Isn't it? I'm just going to pause there. I think it's amazing that now phones are completely standard. You don't do it without a phone. Now, yeah. again, if you're going out for four hours, that's completely different. Unless, of course, you want to take a bunch of selfies. But for actual navigation, the phone is it. It's the best. Yeah. 
I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. I think one skill that's worth um, sort of sorting out beforehand is understanding battery life, though, right? It's amazing what our phones do, but I have an iPhone, and one, the battery life is terrible in cold temperature, and two, it's very dependent on how you have the phone set up. I think, I think Andrew Skurka and others have done great articles about how to change settings, go into airplane mode, turn off background, refresh, things like that. There's all these tricks to like extend the life. Definitely. Huge from your extension. Phone. And that's huge, right? I mean, right now, if I went out with my phone, it's two or three year old battery. Um, it's amazing how short its life is, right? You see uh, fast packers out there using one phone and one charge for like, you know, 10 days or more. And so they, they've really learned how to like eke every little bit out of the phone. So I guess my point or my suggestion to people is to figure that out beforehand rather than, you know, f- having the phone trying to get a cell signal when it can't and just running out of the battery in like five, six hours, you know. Just, yeah, you just turn that off. Yep. So that's really important. There's good articles out there. I believe Andrew's, I believe Andrew's written a really good one. So It was his friend Alan Dixon who wrote the first one I saw. Okay. I mean, that'd be worth linking too because the phone's amazing, but the, the risk there is we become so dependent upon it and the thing dies, and we're hosed, right? Right. So I think that's an important thing for people to figure out how to use it. It's, a, it's very powerful. But, you know, if you're using it in daylight, too, where the screen's got to go super bright, that's a, one of the biggest power draws on it, actually. Is the screen, definitely. Yeah. So. Okay. Gear is a big topic, Jared. We ought to just keep moving on this. I mean, what do you got with gear? You're using, uh, talking about shoes? Are you talking about just the key items for a big project? Well, we could probably do a whole, you know, <laughs> number of these just on gear if you wanted to, but I think we should just probably hit on, like, the, the most important things, right? Well, for me, I think so. I think so. The other things are covered elsewhere, but this is really the big project type things. Yeah. We mentioned the, uh, the navigation ability with the phone and how to keep it going. Another one that comes up for me is uh, trekking poles, which shockingly still seem to be discussed. I thought this was sort of over and done with, but some people are still discussing it. So I have to put in my two cents. Yes, bring trekking poles if you're going to be in going up and down a lot of hills. Yeah, I agree. And especially if you're doing multi-day where you're staying somewhere too, like, you know, uh, so much of the equipment, shelters and whatnot actually leverage poles as part of the structure for little tents and things like that. And I've ended up using that quite a bit. Right. And stream crossings. Yeah. Totally. Being, being swept downstream to your death is not that fun. Yeah. And then, I mean, without turning this into a whole gear podcast, but having the gear, I mean, to, it's amazing today what you can shove in a pack, right? Um, in terms of gear, if, if you involve pack rafts, I mean, I've done like multi-day things in Canyonlands where I've had a pack, a sleeping bag, a harness, you know, 200 feet of rope, um, all this stuff shoved into like a 30 liter pack is like pretty amazing, right? And food for multiple days. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Now, it really gets funky when they're your bike pack rafting, which is done in Canyonlands National Park, too, where you're taking apart your mountain bike and putting it on a pack raft, but that's bigger than a 30-liter pack. At least today it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so touching on pack rafts, that's an interesting gear thing. It's another, Andrew Skirko is really into pack raft. That's yeah. a thing. You and I have done a little bit of it. It's It's... Most parts of the world, it has no meaning whatsoever. I mean, you're not going to go pack rafting in the Midwest. Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. Most places, you're not. But in, oddly, Alaska, the fjordlands, it can make a lot of sense. So you can thrash through a lot of bush 
or you can just paddle across a fjord uh, beach to beach. And oddly enough, it also works out here in Utah because the Colorado River, the Green River, and things like that, you can jog downstream or get across the big rivers and connect up routes using a pack raft. Yeah, I think it's been so much fun, actually. They're amazing. The little boat I have, I think, is a pound and a half and, sh and packs down to a, a, around a liter in volume. Um, and then I think uh, I have a little five-piece carbon fiber paddle pole. Uh, also, it doesn't weigh very much. so You can't use that to erect your tarp. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, not for everybody, but yeah, good point. In the desert southwest, like it's pretty interesting the opportunities that opens up, the possibilities that opens up if you have a little boat with you. Right. Do you take a first aid kit? Yeah, but I'm really minimal. Like what's in it? Uh, like a little bit of tape, um, butterfly band-aids, not much more than that. Right. So that's where I probably cut up my game there. Maybe. This is one of my pet theories, which is first aid kits are basically bogus because if you get hurt enough to need treatment, you don't have it in a first aid kit. Yeah. Whatever you need is not included. And what is included, you don't actually need if you do get hurt. A bit, you know, like antiseptic lotion, who cares? You're, you're not going to be out there for two months. Uh, Band-Aids, you know. Yeah. I do bring tape. Tape's a good thing. I definitely sure. always bring tape. I always bring moleskin. And if I'm going out in the desert, I always bring tweezers for you know what? Cactus. Cacti. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Okay, so first... I think like a butterfly stitches can be a good thing. Or if you know how to suture yourself. Friend of mine's done that in situ on rids before. Well, they, well, I don't think I'm too squeamish to do that to myself. Yeah. Just, well, it's a skill I don't have yet, but I'd like to. I'll just whip out the duct tape. Okay, duct tape. Anything else on gear that would be key? I mean, without turning this into a whole gear thing, the pack is key, obviously. The pack. Right. Mm -hmm. Making sure you know how to use it. How to? For me, I'm, and I kind of know where I put things. You know, I, I got all my basic things with me. You know, sunblock. Lubrication, I mean, phone, really basic things, phone, pocket for that, yeah. Well, we're, we're sitting here doing this interview together, and you just gestured uh, up by your chest, and so that's really how the pack game changed, is there's storage up front. Mm -hmm. you, whatever it is, whether it's uh, one of our running vests, a pack, you really want storage up front, because it's stupid to take the pack off to get at something. Yeah, I agree. You know, I'm forgetting my new favorite piece of gear. What's that? Which is a B-Free, Catadine B-Free water oh, filter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. that's become one of my favorite things. Yeah. Everywhere from really short runs to multi-day kind of thing. Right. So you don't treat, you just filter. Yeah, and, and that you're device... You're squeezing out of the bottle, it's going through the filter, and you're getting 99.8%. Yeah. Out. And I've, I've, I've worked with a number of different devices. In fact... Um, me and a couple other people traversed uh, Bears Ears National Monument a couple years ago, north to south. So I think it was four days or something like that. And we had like three different filters between us and some iodine tablets. Two of the three filters plugged up. Um, Naturally. Yeah. And they were the most expensive, most complicated <laughs> devices. And in the end, the little bee free was literally the thing that filled our bladders for like three days. Right, wow. for four people, actually. Wow. It was amazing. And by the end, it was plugged up. But I mean, for a little tiny device that's, you know, a couple two and a half inches long. Um, it was amazing how well it worked. Actually. Good call. So, All right. Yeah, those expensive pump filters. Yeah, it's no good. It's no yeah. good. Yeah. Okay. So, so we, we've covered the planning, various aspects of planning, and a few pieces, few select pieces of gear. 
before we leave anything else in gear before we move into uh i think food you eat when you go out on a big project i've been known to eat a thing or two so what what do you do well i don't know if you're like me buzz but i get pretty sick of hearing people talk about you know their gel intake and <laughs> every other type of calorie they they put in their body um but are you paleo or not no i'm not okay we got that out of the way yeah okay good um I do eat pretty real food. I mean, you know, trail mix, things like this. Um, the longer I do this, the more my food starts to look like normal food. Oh, well that's, there's a one-liner for you. You, <laughs> you start out with these little gel packets, and you end up with a nice burrito. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. But, I mean, without going into details about the types of food, because I think that's so different for everybody, right? And I think we all need to just experiment until we arrive at something that works for us. At the end of the day, from a packing standpoint for me, logistics standpoint, I truly look at like the number of hours I expect to be out there. And that's, you've already done that in the phase one, the planning phase, you've created the timeline. You've analyzed yep. the route, you've walked through it, you've noted the water sources, and in that you see the different time. And so that's only after that you can do the food planning. Precisely. And then I'll actually even build that into the spreadsheet, you know, for this split between you know, checkpoint one, checkpoint two, you know, it's 10 miles, it's going to take me, you know, two and a half hours, that's X number of calories. And the math's really simple for me. At this point, I essentially just plan on 300 calories an hour. 300 an hour. Now, okay, now this, you got a number here. So we have to dive into that a little bit. Is that waking hours, walking hours, or all hours? It's moving hours. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah like moving diligently. If I am going to spend a night, obviously, I would plan in some like little dedicated meal kind of mm -hmm. at the end of the day type of thing. But for moving hours for me, um, and I, I fluctuate, and I'm probably usually consuming less than that. But, you know, if, I've, if I'm going to do a 10-hour project, you know, taking 3,000 calories, right? Mm -hmm. And then over the years, I've developed a little database of, like, different types of food and sort of their calorie per ounce type of thing. Um, I made a little note here that on average they're about – the foods that I tend to bring with me are about 100, 110 calories per ounce. And so that makes some easy math, too, on the weight associated with the food that you bring. Right. Interesting. And I want to note that there's been various parameters in terms of, particularly with ultra races, how many calories an hour you can eat. Mm -hmm. And that number 200 has been floating out there ever since, you know, for 20, 30 years. Yeah. I talked to Dr. Roger Cram about this a number of years ago. He researched that and said someone made it up. I believe it. They just literally made it up, published it, and everyone republished it since then. And that 200 calories per hour guideline is completely out of someone's rear end. There you go. I'm, sounds about right. So it's really whatever works for you, totally. whatever you can get down. And, of course, you have to change and adjust it for a for length of time. So basically, uh, for most people, if you're running a road marathon, you're just going to deplete yourself. You're yeah. going to put the hammer down. You're going to be depleted when you're done. Yeah. If you're doing 100 miles, that's not going to work. And if or a multi-day, right? I mean, you don't want to get into a deficit, right? Right. You'd... But at 100 miles, you can eat sugar, right? You can just, because glucose is what you burn. You can just keep pouring in the sugar. But for multi-day, that's not going to work that well. So you have to change the balance a little yeah, bit. Yeah, totally. Well, even for a 100-miler for me... Um, and most people, I think, you hear everybody having stomach issues. I would attribute a lot of that to really high sugar-based hmm. fuel. Hmm. I don't know. At least for me. So if I eat real food, my stomach's good. So you go 300 calories per hour, mm -hmm. moving time. And that means 
based on your weights there, you're probably having a fair amount of fat because yeah. fat, of course, has nine calories per gram, while sugar, even the sweetest sucrose, is only four calories per gram, the same amount of weight. Yeah. So if you actually want to carry less weight and more calories, it's fat, not sugar. Yep, yep, cashews, almonds, nuts, things like this for sure. That's probably half my calories when I'm out there, I'd say. Oh, nuts, you're a nut guy. Yep, I'm All a right. nut guy. Macadamia is the highest caloric food there, there is. Okay, we, we both know that, okay. Let me say this too on the food thing. In addition to sort of understanding, you know, calories per ounce, metrics like that, um, I've even simplified it further, like a little snack size Ziploc. Right, you get the sandwich size, you get the big ones, but a snack size, I don't know if there's a standard out there for the size of that, but it's about 600 calories if you have a fairly dense food that you're shoving in there, so that's two hours, right? So if you don't have the time to do the math or a scale or anything like that, buy some little snack size bags, fill them up with something dense, something fairly dense, um, and you're, you're looking at about two hours per little snack bag. Two hours per snack bag. Okay, that's a good way to look at yeah. it. When, when I have done it, I actually... Because I, I like fat, and I'm a big nut guy also, and I like, because I'm an old person, I like protein, because uh -huh. I metabolize protein slower than other people. And so I tend to eat sweet chocolate or fat or protein. And so you can't, you know, you can't have a conversation about, about this without mentioning chocolate, in my opinion. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> so what I do, I create a food-specific spreadsheet. It's very, very simple. Yep. And then I weigh it on a posted scale, and everything is prepackaged. So there's day one breakfast, day one snack, day one dinner, yeah. and then the same three. And so I am just emptying out those little packets per day. I don't measure, I don't look at it, I don't have to think about it. Yeah, I, I, totally. I think you got to be. The more you can pre-plan like that, then you can just when you're in the then you're just executing. You're just executing. Yeah, not even thinking about it. Okay. Totally. All right. And uh, anything else on? Food. I think anything beyond that is just getting <laughs> into the annoying topic. <laughs> I don't want to lose people here. <laughs> well, we mentioned chocolate, so we're not going to lose too many people That's a good with point. that. Yeah. Yes. So there, are, I think our last one, which is very interesting, is a catch-all, but it's super important for the big projects. Is strategy. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the cleverness. You can be just a smart person, do all the planning, look at the route, get your food all weighed out down to the gram. But unless you got a clever plan, it might not matter. Yeah. And I think the bigger the project becomes, too, um, you know, you get a lot of people wanting to go jump on these projects that maybe were done by some big name, you know, super fast woman or, or, or fast man. And the, if it's a big project, especially multi-day things, all of a sudden, you know, there's a lot of room in there in, in going faster through just strategy. You don't necessarily have to be a better, faster you know, athlete. That's a good point. So when people are looking at this, they want to go do something, they say, well, I'm not going to be as fast as Darcy or as Jim Walmsley. I they probably are not. But what if they outsmarted them? What if they had a better plan? Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's, I think we see that all over the, the place with different records of climbing and, and running records for sure. Right. Well, what's some examples of this? I, I think, of course, we, in our last uh, part one of the topic, we talked about Zion Man, the traverse across Zion National Park, and we started that in June at 4 p.m. <laughs> that sounds a little odd, doesn't it? So yes. why, why the heck did we do that? Well, so back to the whole timetable thing, right? We built out, again, those milestones. We had sections we knew would be slow. We had sections we knew would be fast. We had a section that we knew we wanted to do in the daylight, right? The most technical part of it. We wanted to make sure we hit that right at sunrise, right? 
So that sort of in the timetable spreadsheet was like, got to be there at first light. First light we knew was at, you know, whatever time. And we sort of just shifted the start, the start time, you know, accordingly. And we started what time? 4 p.m. 4 p.m. It was yeah. like 95 degrees out. Yeah. It was like an odd time to start, start a project, but it worked out perfect. I mean, literally, we were on the timetable, you know, really accurately and hit the technical part right at sunlight. Yep. Yep. So and that finished, was a great strategic move there. And finished right where we wanted to. We, we pulled the ropes down. We went up Orderville right where we could still see it, find it. What other strategies are there? Oh, and Francois Bion, who was the FKT of the Year award winner. Um, did the John Muir Trail in October, very counterintuitive, mm -hmm. which means he's happy with the headlamp, he's good with the headlamp, but he had the cool daytime temperatures. Yeah. So he could, he's fast, so he could go fast. That yeah. was a different strategy. Well, and, and uh, speaking of what Francois did there, I mean, he, his approach to having a crew, right, or pacers, that was yeah. a different, different technique level. that had ever been applied on the JMT. Right. So there's games like that that you can play for sure. Right. What are some What are some other examples? I'm thinking about the AT when uh, we was on this podcast. I forgot when ago. Carl Sabe, mm -hmm. who you've been in communication with, he just took four days. Yeah. Th this was coming down by hours, and then a couple, and then a few hours, then a few hours, then he took four days off, and definitely listen to that podcast. Sorry, listeners, I can't remember what number it was. But he identified start early, get it done. Because you're mentally sharp, you're physically sharp, you're well-rested. And so when he got up into New England, he was hydrated and rested. While other people, when they get up to that stage of the game, they're all run down. That's a good strategy. There's weather, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I thought what Carl did, I think I mentioned this, this to you, um, the podcast that he did talking about his techniques there were really educational to me. I've never done anything like that, that long, that, you know, back to back to back kind of thing. But so, I mean, four days was huge, right? Four days is giant. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I, I, and I think that was all strategy on his part, right? Yeah. He's the Belgian dentist. <laughs> <laughs> he's not, he, he just avowed that he wasn't, didn't think he was as, as fit or as strong as some other people, but he had the best strategy. Here's another really good one that comes to mind that's close to my home, the Colorado 14ers. And that could be the Colorado 14er project, all 58, and it could be Nolan's 14, which is sort of the same thing. And people used to do these in August. The weather had settled down by late July, is much drier, and so rocks were clear. It sounded like a good idea. Then someone said, wait a minute, rocks are slow, snow is fast. And so as long as you know how to glissade and use an ice axe, doing it in June was actually the best strategy. Yep, completely agree. Um, you know, a little bit closer to home here with the Whirl, which has really caught on a little project here in the Wasatch. Um, you know, the fastest times have typically been done in the fall there. But there's something to be said for doing that in June on a big snow year, too, because it's mostly, you know, talus the whole way. Well, I mean... A good portion of it's on talus, right? And if you can if you can hit it at the right time of year, where there's enough snow that you're not sinking through, um, it can actually be faster. I would argue. Right. Um, I, I, the fastest time still is in dry conditions, um, but I think there's really room for improvement there on snow. We've had to work with this in terms of ski descents. Yeah. Because where there's a big history, like Mont Blanc, there's the running uh, speed record, and then there's the skiing one. Here, people aren't doing that so much, but it comes up on Mount Rainier. Right. 
So you could ski it faster than you can run it, obviously. And there's yeah. a certain strategy there. When um, I did Mount Rainier, and then later when Peter Knight did the Cascade Trifecta, which is Rainier, Hood, and Adams in a day, when do you start Rainier? And I was thinking about this. I wanted to do that again in June because I wanted the crevasses to be covered. Mm-hmm. So by the time they open up, then it's safer. You can see their existence. But that means you also have to jump over them and walk around them. Well, if you do it in June, you can just walk over the top. Strategy's a big deal. Oh, yeah, for sure. What else have you done? Well, um, you know, you and I like to talk about the Grand Canyon, right? Yeah. Different ways to cross the Grand Canyon. We were having a debate on the fastest Fastest, best way to cross it. Um, right. I think there's still some work to be done there, right? People By crossing, will, you mean swimming across. Well, crazy people have done it with flippers. <laughs> <laughs> um, others have used flotation device. I'm, I'm quite uh, fond of my little one-and-a-half-pound boat, um, which is a pretty cool way to get across a river. So, Right. I mean, there's a strategic element for sure in the Grand Canyon with the multiple routes across it. There's more than just one. There's way more than rim-to-rim-to-rim, <laughs> way more. So hopefully other people will ease the crowding and congestion on the Kaibab Trail and branch out a little bit because the Grand Canyon is amazing. Yeah. That's an interesting point because you can give up a lot of time messing that one up, and that ties our conversation back to the planning phase, the rehearsal phase, because when I got my pack raft, I took it out onto this dorky little reservoir in Longmont, Colorado, and paddled it around. You look like an idiot, frankly. You look like you're in this pool toy that just kind of blew out of the swimming pool. But you have to practice. Unless you practice blowing it up, deflating it, and rolling it up, you're going to lose gobs of time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Another strategy uh, that I use, I mentioned Snowtel, the Snowtel sites where you get to use all all the data that the government collects to see what the snowpack happens to be. And these are all bookmarked on my computer as well as river flow data. Mm-hmm. You know, they can just go to one site and it gives you all the stream gauge data. And so if you want to cross the Colorado, cross the green, cross the whatever, this applies back east as well as out west. You know if you can get across or not by reading the stream gauge. And this is really good data. If you, if you do your planning, you can strategize the best time of year and time of day to do your project. Yeah, for sure. I think on the technical side, too, uh, the routes that are involving scrambling and whatnot, you know, you and I were talking about the Cirque of the Towers traverse and the winds, right? Cirque of the Towers, that's a tough one. I mean, that's an interesting one, right? If you're a really good climber, you can climb almost all of it. You can climb almost all of it. Um, but there's definite points where you have to wrap, or if you wrap, it could actually be more beneficial from a time um, standpoint. So another strategy for sure that applies more to really technical things. Right. That that wrap versus down climb is an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, and the flat irons above Boulder, we've, well, I guess it, different people still do it different ways. Uh, Peter and I like to wrap. We'd carry a small cord, a uh, fairly narrow cord that wouldn't really want to lead on. And uh, then you just fix it and wrap off it, and that was quicker than down climbing. So these right. are tactics. And, and as you said to start this off, Jared, someone who maybe isn't as strong or as fit as the next person can beat him with better tactics. Absolutely. Which is kind of fun, particularly for us old guys. We kind of like the thought of that. Totally. I think that's what's so much fun about our sport, right, is so many of these projects, really, there's there's a lot of room just to be made up in tactics, you know. Nolan's, for sure, I think that's why it's still interesting to people, is the route, too, right? Oh, really? You take different routes. You can either take the direct line, which is a little more technical, or an e- more moderate third-class line, which is a little more cer- uh, roundabout. 
Yeah. I mean, I've gone through that too in my time out there. Like what is the best path, right? That objective never was intending to, it never defined an actual path. It was tag these summits, you know? And for me, I, you know, I'm better on technical terrain. I, you know, I might think that the most direct path would be the best path, but um, in many cases it's actually not. So, you know, I mean, that's where everyone can bring their own personal skill set, you know, to the table and make the right decision. For themselves. For themselves. That's the classic FKT style, isn't it? Yeah. It's for you. What works best for you might not work best for the next person. Right. I, I like that a lot. So whatever your strength is, with you during the planning phase, you can tactically take advantage of your strength and avoid your weakness and you know, come out pretty well. Yeah. Well, Jared, what's next for you? What do you think it might come up for you? <laughs> Well, these days, as you know, Buzz, I most of my time spent chasing two little girls around. <laughs> Good tactic. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I don't have a whole lot planned right now mm -hmm. in this fall, in the fall or winter. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we'll see what next year brings. But at this point, I'm kind of in survival mode. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a working man. You have a nice house. You have a nice family. So thank you so much for spending the time with us. We very much appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Hopefully people learn something. <laughs>